0: Forever, Dog. You know, when you're in that situation, you you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. Like, I did not realize how um, disabled I would be. And now my left, like, my left arm is still totally paralyzed. And my, my voice still isn't where it used to be, and I've got a blind spot on the left side. I mean, acting is entirely different now. But there was a moment, literally there was a moment in the ICU where I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I beat Hollywood. I became a success. I moved to LA as a kid, became a successful, built a career, became a successful actor. If I can be, if I can beat Hollywood, then I can beat a stroke. So let's go.
1: Hello, and welcome to Household Faces a podcast, where a character actor interviews other character actors i'm your host john ross bowie you might know me from the big bang theory or speechless or one episode of the usa comedy psych which leads us seamlessly to our guest today our guest is timothy amundsen now i met timothy when i did an episode of psych uh, early in its first season i don't even think it was airing yet But I was up in Vancouver, didn't know anybody, uh, and he was part of the very warm and friendly set that welcomed me with open arms. I was already a fan of Timothy's, having seen him on Deadwood in his brief but incredibly pivotal role, as in like pretty much sets the entire show and the movie up for its whole narrative arc. uh, Early in season one, Uh, we're gonna talk about Deadwood on this episode. Uh, I never pass up a chance to talk about Deadwood in my defense. It's because Deadwood is awesome. We're also going to talk a little bit about Galavant. We are going to talk about This Is Us. We are going to talk about the stroke that almost punched his card to hear him tell it about five years ago and how he is bouncing back from that hurdle. It is a really neat an occasionally moving conversation with my friend. Thank you for listening in. Please welcome Timothy Amundsen. Timothy Amundsen, thank you so much for doing this.
0: John Ross Bowie, thank you for inviting me to be part. I've um, long since been wanted. Wanted to chat with you and be a member of your uh, your awesome club.
1: Well, what, what's nice about this is that I, I actually, I, I I think I know a lot of the answers to these questions already, but I'm going to pimp you into them anyway, and then we're probably going to discover some new stuff along the way. So I, I think this is going to be a net win for me and the listener. Um, I want to start... We nice
0: nice have that, John. Is, I've been, I haven't been into anything since college, so... Um... Yikes. This will be good. Um,
1: this will be exciting. And we're, we're going to talk about, we'll talk about college. Don't you worry. Um, but let's start. Um, it's hard to to pick a a biggest credit, but let's talk with about your, your longest running credit, which would be Lasseter on, on psych, which is where you and I met. Um, how did that role come to you? Uh,
0: was that, that was a, a good old fashioned. Um, my manager and agent submitted for the role and went in and auditioned the old fashioned way.
1: Did you chemistry read with with uh, with Roday?
0: Um, I mean, he was in my test, which I guess you'd call it a chemistry read. Although, um, let me go back here. Um, prior to getting psyched, I had not tested for a show in like eight years. I was pretty convinced that I was never going to get a job with the traditional testing route. route really? I've route, heard of both ways. Yeah, I, just, I could never get past that. I would go up occasionally. I mean, pilot seasons were never great for me. I was always kind of like getting what my long term job was by I was going like, to show up to do one guest spot, and then it would get turned into like three or four, or in some cases, several seasons. So I was pretty convinced I was always going to be the guy who goes in the back door.
1: Is that you? You had a recurring on chasing Amy, right? Not chasing Amy, uh, uh, judging Amy. Judging Amy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the start out as nine episodes, or no, it was supposed to be three episodes and it ended up being ninety. Wow.
1: That's We're 97,
0: give or
1: take. 90 um, is fine. The um, I've never done 90 episodes of any. I haven't done 90 episodes of this podcast. Um, yeah. The uh, so the testing process, and I, I think my audience has been at this for a while now. But there's there's a few different tiers uh, that you go through. Think of it as the uh, the NCAA finals, but for very insecure people. You <laughs> you go to a pre-read with a casting director. You go to a producer session where the people actually created the show, take a look at you. Sometimes you get to skip the pre-read and then you, uh, the way they used to do it is you actually went in person in front of the studio that was producing the show and the network that was producing the show. Those were often two separate appointments. They're doing a lot of this more on tape now, but it's a very long, rigorous process that I, I personally believe is designed to break some people so that... They understand who who can cope under pressure.
0: (laughs) I do not disagree. Um, How many levels of hell did Dante have?
1: Uh, They were closer to eight or nine, I think. But it's you know, it's clearly and um, if I don't know if you've ever tested for uh, network for CBS, but they used to take you down to this weird basement at that building on Fairfax in Beverly. Yeah. That was like, oh, I'm actually being taken to hell right now. This is I am being lowered several malabolgia here
0: at the quote-unquote television air quotes television center
1: yes the television center where they uh where a lot of cbs's corporate decisions are are made you would actually go deep underground so you had a lousy streak with testing um and then this opportunity for psych comes along were you you'll pardon psyched or did you just kind of figure this was a lost cause
0: I know that one. I was really excited about, like the audi- The first audition for um, our producer, the producers, went so well. Like it was such a positive experience that I literally walking out the door was like, I'm going to leave before I screw this up because they were being so, so complimentary. And I just sort of like felt like right in that audition, I really had the guy was in the pocket.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. So, so how do you approach? I- well, how do you approach a character? Let's let's start from the from the ground with this guy, because Lassiter's a very specific kind of character. He's almost the he's almost the Margaret Dumont to Rodez Groucho Marx.
0: Very much so. Right? Fact, you know, um, there's a, there's that um, real um, sense
1: of like stiff, aristocratic, no nonsense. But you obviously have to have a goofy side or else it doesn't work, or else it just looks mean. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so he was, I mean, I went into the audition only having the sides, and it's like, oh, he's a cop. So I put on my dark blue cop suit, and I get in the room, and Steve Franks, the amazing and lovely creator, goes, just so you know, before I even started, just, goes, just so you know, it's not it's not NYPD blue, it's moonlighting. And I thought, oh. oh, okay, I know how to do that.
1: Okay, okay.
0: So that immediately gave me permission to kind of be funny and just lighten up the uh, loosen. I just got to un- loosen, loosen my, unhinge my screws a little bit of the tough guy cop that I was getting ready to do.
1: Well, it's, it is really, actually, now that I think of it, there is a huge debt to moonlighting in the show's self-awareness, in the show's fourth wall poking, the, uh, the sort of cinematic tributes that were layered throughout um, there's a, there's a bunch of, uh, yeah, I never thought about that, but yeah, there, it's absolutely a, a, a Dave and Maddie homage for a big chunk of that show's run.
0: Yeah. And Steve was very, very, as we started the show, Steve was really, um, not hiding that aspect at all. So we all kind it, of leaned into that. And then once I got to the actual testing in the room, I did, a read with James and who, um, ended up giving me a gift. Which I didn't realize was a gift of the time. So James Roderick Rodriguez, who is an incredibly talented actor and improviser, starts going off book in my in my test, and infuriates me. So I, I I do one read, go out the room, just breathing fire, and Steve comes out and they give me they take me to the hallway and give me a note. So they say uh, we're not sure that um, you can quite be strong enough to kind of handle this character. Like Laster could be strong enough to play out. I could be strong enough to play off James. So can you maybe be a little harsher? And I was like, Oh, watch this. So I go on ready and just like <laughs> wanted to punch him in the face. Yeah. But I was so literally, I was so angry that it just, he, I just rolled with that aspect of, of Lassiter. And then 20 minutes later, I'm driving down um, Hillhurst and I get a call from Steve Frank saying, Hey, you're the guy.
1: That's magnificent. Oh, that's a great feeling, to get it in the car, to get it on the ride home. That's fantastic. Um, that's We're happened to me like once. When you read CBS. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the, so,
0: the nice thing about – sorry, I was going to say, the nice thing about auditioning for stuff at um, that CBS television center is you can – after your horrible auditioning, you go to the farmer's, center, the farmer's market right next door and get drunk.
1: Uh yes. Yes, you absolutely can. And just maybe leave your car overnight and uh, and Uber home. Yeah, there's a, there's a few opportunities there for, for that sort of behavior. Um, so you, you do the show. You move up to Vancouver for a few years. Did you do the entire run in Vancouver?
0: Uh, we did. Yeah, we did the whole thing. And then my kids were toddlers. My girls were toddlers at the time. So it was literally like loaded up the car. I drove up. I think I drove to Vancouver. I think I kind of watched. There was like ten times because once I had to take two cars. Like first was the SUV loaded up with all the stuff for the kids. Like I hit the border looking like the Clampets. I had bikes <laughs> strapped to the top. I had like a, a bike stroller strapped to the top of my of my SUV and get to the border and they're they are pretty sure I'm moving in and a little freaked out and eventually they let me into the country and I found a a really beautiful. Place to rent for my wife and daughters. So my kids were really raised in Vancouver. They, it's a very special place to them. And since we're doing the movies, they've had they've got to come back and at least once a year, and stay with me and do the movies. And this for the last movie, we got to sure so we we played the girls' big, greatest hits of the place, the, like the beaches they grow up.
1: Oh, nice. Oh, that's really sweet to hear. Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great city. When you guest in Vancouver, everyone stays at the same hotel, the famous Sutton Place. The um, Sutton Place, which is is famous um, because. It doesn't matter what production you're with. They're probably going to put you there. So it isn't just people from whatever show you're guesting on. It's whatever else is shooting in Vancouver. So uh, the gym is, you know, Mary Steenbergen on the elliptical. And here comes Kristen Chenoweth. And and, and, I'm going to go have a drink with Matthew Broderick. It's this fascinating, like, mega lost in translation uh, place. Uh, I don't know what the neighborhood is. What neighborhood is that? Where the Sutton Place is. It's near the Gaslight um... District. It's near the Gaslamp District.
0: It's sort of, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of downtown.
1: Yeah, yeah. Gaslight's a little more south. Okay.
0: It's right near the. I right remember I walked City. to the gas lab but, District um, to
1: buy weed at the time. I remember that.
0: Yeah, hopefully you didn't make that walk at night. That can get a little dodgy. It's on the way to... No, the it was, bro- speech, it was but, broad um, daylight.
1: I was told to go to some bar and hang out by the jukebox, and somebody would approach me, and lo and behold, <laughs> they did.
0: I know that bar, only because <laughs> when, it, when a, buddy, a buddy of mine from Seattle came up to visit me, and he was looking for the same thing, and um, he was told me he, he had to go hang out by the guy at the jukebox. <laughs> That's hilarious. D- like, guy, yeah, my I, had, I, had, had, class, I the, had... The guy next to the jukebox... <laughs>
1: I had 3 scenes, I only spoke in one of them. We shot my first my shot my initial stuff, you know, pretty quickly, so I was done talking for the week and I was like, "Ah, I don't have to be off book. <laughs> um, I don't encourage that, guys. I don't encourage uh, getting high while you're on location. But um, if you're in Vancouver, apparently you just wander by. Although I imagine everything's perfectly legal now. There was a time was you had to like either be in Vancouver or you had to ask your sound guy if you wanted weed on location. And uh, these kids today don't know how easy they have it.
0: No, yeah, in fact, I had a uh, when I was up for the our last movie, our um, boom operators who became dear, very dear friends of mine. I was quarantining with my family in the Sunplace Hotel, and they sent me a Vancouver care package with um, Molson Canadian Club, some poutine, and literally some weed that they bought in in a grocery store.
1: Oh my God, that's incredible! So to this
0: day, when we're when we're driving around because uh, pot is not legal in L.A., whenever we get a whiff of a skunk, oh look, hey, no kids, it's just a skunk. My daughters would literally go, "Oh, Vancouver."
1: <laughs> that's because magical so,
0: down at, at Point beach you could walk down the beach and you, all you're getting is just the secondhand smoke
1: so oh i'm my, sure that's my
0: daughter's sense memory event was, was smoking, Amazing. Smelling the gorge.
1: well i mean i grew up in, i grew up in the in hell's kitchen in, in new york city in the 70s so it, it, it's a a weirdly associative uh olfactory memory for uh, me as well but let's talk about the north uh west for a moment um you grew up in seattle right
0: for a kid who, who was a horrible athlete and not a great student but wanted to be an actor, it was a great place to grow up because it was, Shadows got a, dozens of great equity houses. Dozens, really? I would say dozens, I would think. Wow. At least in the time I was there, it was. Did you do some professional acting when you were a kid? I, um, no, I, I interned at theaters. In high school, I started interning around. So I could just like hang out. And, and, and after my first, when I hit seventh grade, I took my first drama class and my world just kind of exploded and opened up. So by kind of twelve years old, I had sort of gotten through everything I felt I could get out of junior high drama school, and started taking classes at the really amazing Seattle Children's Theater.
1: Really? So yeah, what did you? What is it? What does a twelve-year-old do at Seattle Children's Theater? What kind of stuff do you work on?
0: Uh, it was pretty. What, we, we, at that time, we we were with they brought in a director and a playwright. So we we so they wrote a play around us, and we perform, ended up performing that play. Interesting. I've just this was in eighty four, and I've just recently. Found a Facebook group dedicated to this this young training program, Class of '84, and reconnected with all these other kids who were at the time. Now, of course, they're middle aged people, but well little kids at the time, trying to figure out what the hell we we're doing. Oh, wow. Actually, my first class there was was really was a technical feeder. I was learning lighting and how to run a, how to run a, a lighting board.
1: Oh wow, that's so that's so helpful, and it probably makes you a little extra empathetic when for the crew on whatever set you're on, I imagine.
0: Yeah. So I'm the kid, like, and then because I had that knowledge, I, in junior high, I was the kid on the ladder hanging the Lycos. They're you know, letting a 12 year old child up on a, um, what 30 foot ladder with a, um, really heavy lighting instrument hanging dangling, dangling from his hand.
1: I feel like you were probably already really tall though. Were you already really tall? I feel like you were probably already really tall.
0: I was a, I was a big old bean pole of a kid.
1: Okay. So um, you but passed, I'm sure. It you know, it wasn't like, you know, setting some, you know, 7-year-old, you know, 4 foot 11 kid up there. Um that's true. Uh, but so what so you you immediately fall in love with uh with theater uh when you were twelve. Did you think about doing anything else, or were you just single minded in your pursuit?
0: Oh no, that was it. was it. And I remember saying the day the day I said to my dad when the, when the bedroom was like, okay, I made the decision. I'm gonna, about six, and I was like, I'm going to be an actor because if you have a talent, and you don't use it, then you don't consider you have the talent. And he just went stared at me for a second, and went okay. Hmm. And they were, luckily I had very very supportive parents who paid for me to, like to take these classes in Seattle and hop on a bus, and let me, when I, like I said, I was so I interned at the Empty Space Theater in Seattle when I was in high school, okay. just so I could hang out in a professional theater and be around, just be around professional theater actors.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think you probably learned, you can probably learn more there than you could in a conventional class setting, I imagine.
0: I absolutely did. And I got, there was one of the best actors I know is a local Seattle Seattle actor, a guy named David Pachette. Yeah. And uh, I got to watch him do three different roles over the course of my years there and it was incredible watching him go from rehearsal to um performance night it was um pretty pretty amazing. In fact, the day before I went down to before I flew to LA for my theater school auditions, I told him I had these auditions coming up and he took me up on the main stage and <laughs> literally played uh York to my Hamlet, Jimmy Tyrone to my James Tyrone to my Jamie, like did my did my monologue. Let me perform my monologues to him playing off the so I actually had these had a human being's face in my head when I would was somebody down down at college and auditioning.
2: Oh
1: my god. Like this incredible
0: gift this Med gave me.
1: So hang on, you did you did um a last poor York, I knew him Horatio and which which monologue from Day's journey? Do you remember?
0: Uh it was the um God yes. It was the um him uh I think it was Jamie talking about uh sailing.
1: Oh, okay. I can't remember the
0: exact lines to it, though.
1: That. Uh, that's that's incredible. What roles had you seen David play?
0: I uh, saw so him do Don Juan and um, Irma Vep. <gasps> oh, wait, Irma Vep, the Charles Ludlam adaptation? Yeah, the mystery of Irma Vep. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'll the crazy sure one with all the Charles changes Lund. and everything.
0: Oh, that's so yeah.
1: cool. Oh, that's so, what a great thing to watch. What a great process to watch something that requires that much versatility from one guy.
0: In fact, when I was very young, he and I got to be part of a playwriting program. For where, um, again, they brought in a a playwright and we workshopped a production of Frankenstein for um, the Honolulu Children's Theater. And David was in this, so I and I was so admired this guy so much. I and I was a great mimic at the time. So I he had this beautiful voice, so I, God, I could mimic David's stage voice. Like his just sort of speaking voice was he reminded me of um God, what's so yeah, my one of my favorite character actors. Um from Casablanca.
1: Um Claude Rains, Peter, Claude, Rain. Claude, Claude Rains.
0: Rains, okay. That was Claude Rains. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, there's, there's a few in there. You know yeah. he had this voice like claude rains and um so i um yeah so i admired david greatly and then he kind of mentored me along the ways of preparing for college and but no but i never did anything i never i think actually i did make um 65 bucks once for doing a play at um with these same playwrights at seattle center we did um which is sort of the big um, Seattle centers where they had the world's fair. Okay. It's 63. Okay. And they, they have a great amphitheater there. And somebody decided to put on a play. So I think I made like 65 bucks to do, to do a, um, a play there.
1: Was it an original? <laughs>
0: yeah, it was, it was written, um, by Carl Sander, who was our playwright from the Young Fist Training Program.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: And I took so- that money and I bought, I bought the most eighties jacket, like this thing was right out of a Yalha video,
1: was it the uh, a a puffy eighties jacket with the sleeves rolled up kind of
0: thing? No, it was, it was like a high collared with like oh. some of a, a overlapping um, angular. Um, I'm pretty sure there was some there was some padded um, sleeves in there.
1: Nice, nice. Like it could have
0: been in a Robert Palmer video.
1: Oh, fantastic! Good for you, good for you. Um, yeah, I yeah, hope there really, are photos. It was, it was
0: straight out of the uh, Take on Me video.
1: Oh, glorious. Oh, sign me up. Um, so you went uh you mentioned going down to, to LA for your theater school auditions. Um, you got in and went to USC, which is a pretty competitive program with a lot of great <clears throat> one of the great things about USC is that um they've got a real working faculty. Like that that faculty are are still working. They miss class because they're doing gigs for better or for worse, but they've got like a real foot-on-the-ground sort of quality to their instruction, I hear, because they're they're still in the thick of it. Did you did you feel that? Did you get a sense of, like, oh, these are actual professional, still professional actors who who happen to be teaching us?
0: Um, Yeah, and certainly at the time I was there, which was, see, I got there in 87 and left in
2: 91.
0: Okay. So, some of our professors were, like, honestly, I really like theater actors from L.A.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There was I can't quite remember the, I think it was the it was either the company theater or the group theater in LA that was one of my professors was um rather famous for being the first guy to drop troll on an LA stage.
1: That's magnificent. What, in a production of hair or what?
0: I I don't think it was that um, formal. Okay. Oh I see. <laughs> but it, was we, very, we it was a very it was a very
1: bold tempest. <laughs>
0: May rest in peace. But then we got a lot of those, a lot of his colleagues came back to direct our shows.
2: Oh, cool. So we had some
0: really hardcore, we had some really hardcore um, early 60s, 70s theater guys and gals uh, teaching us.
1: Well, I mean, for a while there, um, what's his face? Um, oh God, he is the killer in the first Dirty Harry movie. Andrew Robinson, I think is his name.
2: Yeah,
0: and he yeah, Eddie, Eddie was there. Yeah, Eddie went, okay. we became the associate dean right after I left.
1: Oh no, kidding! Wow, yeah, he's been teaching there on and off for for decades, I think. And that's, I mean, yeah, what's cooler than having a you know a guy that gets killed by Clint Eastwood as your uh, as your acting professor? Um, what kind of stuff did you do when you were at USC? What kind of plays did you do?
0: I I got really lucky early on. I was um I was sort of on this. I was sort of I figured I was destined to be a classical theater actor. I did a lot of Shakespeare. In there I was doing Shakespeare in and Chekhov, and I got my first main stage, totally boasting my first go ahead. main stage my freshman year which um was uh not very common
1: what so and i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to lead you down this boasting path for a moment here um this is because where we're, going, we're Sean, go ahead. Uh, but no but I, I it's this is the place for it one and two i think it 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 helps give some insight to your arc so here you are you show up you're what are you six one, six two, 62 somewhere in there
0: I, at the time I was six foot, yeah. I mean I'm six foot now, so I was probably six foot then. I don't think I okay. to, But I was um, tall, I had a super deep voice, and I yeah. could um grow a beard really really easily.
1: Right, right. Was your what what uh state, this is eighty seven to ninety one, that could be in anything. What stage was your hair in? Were you in super long hair uh to mom era era? It, it was
0: it was it, it eventually became. Yeah, my freshman year was when I first like kid eighteen year old kid away from home. Immediately grew my hair out as long as I could because there's nobody telling me to cut until it got to the point it was just too much, even for the roles I was playing.
1: <laughs> well, cause you've got so a quality, you have a quality that isn't super common in, cause you were only a couple years older than me, but you have a, a quality that isn't particularly common in actors, our age of our generation, which is a sort of a dashing air to you. And, and you're, you're, you can, it, it's, it's no, but it's, it, it's, It's very natural. It's not affected. There's just a little more Errol Flynn in your DNA than the average actor who was born in the late 60s, early 70s. Because we all grew up watching, you know, Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino and Gene Hackman and that wave of Actors Studio guys. And you've got all that stuff, but you've also got this quality about you that is a little more old school and a little more. um, Oh, God, I'm going to comfortably say foppish.
0: You could. I will totally embrace the popish.
1: It definitely comes across in last wouldn't you say?
0: So freshman year, I'm doing. I get uh, Claudius and um, no, sorry, I get Capulet in Romeo and Juliet.
2: Oh wow! And they gave
0: me the most amazing, the most amazing cape. Like it was like a full on Superman like Superman cape. It was like floor almost floor length. And boy, let me tell you, man, I could work that cape. Talk about popish.
1: <laughs> did the role? Did the play become a play about a cape? Was it less about cross star-crossed lovers and more about uh, uh, this one dad and his cape?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there was some dead kids in there too, but um, so was <laughs> the dead girl, the, 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 the dead girl's dad's cape.
1: Um, what um, what else did you? I because you know I, I didn't go to I didn't go to theater school, so I'm so jealous of people who got to do these enormous classical roles when they were like 19 years old. I love to hear stories about this. What else did you get to do?
0: I got to play Claudius and Hamlet and Hamlet at one point. Oh my God. And and then my senior year I did Iago.
1: (sighs) That's wow. Um, Unless I'm mistaken, Iago is the first or second most amount of lines in a Shakespeare play. Am I right about that?
0: It's the, I think it's, the, it's the first, yeah. It's the first, yeah. It's the first and Hamlet's
1: second, yeah. It's a popular misconception that Hamlet talks the most, but it's actually Iago who just cannot shut the fuck up. Okay, this is before you've got like a cell phone with uh, with uh, an app that can help you learn lines on it. How does a 21-year-old guy get off book with all that text?
0: Um, That was just good old-fashioned. I used to write my lines down at the time. Oh, yeah. I still have to. Yeah. So I was just buckling down and writing out all the dialogue and pounding them in my head. I was it was college I wasn't doing much of anything else. okay. So it so yeah, so
1: that like is I'm also I mean, it's funny. My my daughter's at an art school right now and I'm always asking her to be kind to her academic teachers. Um uh, who are you know stuck teaching biology to a bunch of you know art teens, which I don't wish on anyone. Um, did you did you find that like your your non major electives really went to the went to the wayside?
0: Yeah, I mean, I tried to do everything I could to focus around theater. Although, because I did have to take some general ed stuff, and for okay. some god reason, I took it. I found myself in an ROTC class about the history of a war, which I thought, okay, that, you know, that's history. I, I should learn this stuff.
1: What was that class like for, for uh, gentle, non-athletic uh, uh, Timothy Amundsen?
0: I just really tried to take as much of the history side of it as I could and approach it as, as a role and go, this is oh, all okay. just research for some role I may play in the future.
1: Ah, interesting. Do you feel it has come up?
0: Well, it's interesting right now I'm remembering stuff as the horrors that are going on in the Ukraine right now. And they're talking about basically the war of attrition. I keep thinking back to there was a chapter on George Washington's war of attrition. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly still remembering. The thing that did come back, not necessarily that class, but um, my geology class, because I had to take one science. The reason I got a BFA is because there was no math, no hard science. Right, right. Because pretty... I'm the guy. It took, it took me five, I think, five tries to get to pass the math competency test to finally graduate high school, which I think because um, I was like, cl- I was really involved. I was class president and stuff. So I was really close with our high school principal. I think he finally just was like, yeah, you, you're, you're, you know, give me your signature. Let me just sort of, let, let me just fill this form out. I eventually did a show called Sequest where I was sort of the science guy. And my very first monologue on, and I actually had, it was a TV show and I had a monologue because we called my character, my character's name was Dr. Levin. We called him Levin the explainer because it would bring me into then just get, just lay pipe of ex- exposition. hmm mm-hmm. And I had an entire speech explaining carstification to the crew of this submarine. It was, it was really. It was, it, I I was grateful for all my Shakespeare training to be able to make sense of these incredibly um, scientific terms. But I I kept, that was one of for some strange reasons that's one of the few text like general regular education textbook I kept. So I went back to my geology textbook from college and, and looked up the classification chapter.
1: But that's great. So you actually have some idea of what you're talking about. You have some, you can, this isn't just words coming out of your mouth phonetically, you have some authority.
0: Exactly, but, um, and I think, yeah, it's like chicks. You can't do Shakespeare unless you know what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: the job that got you into the union and i just watched the episode last night was um a uh, a a genuinely classic episode of of Seinfeld i i knew your storyline i forgot that your storyline was the same week as Seinfeld's dirty talk thing i i, I oh, had forgot they were in the same episode um it is it's just one scene but the great thing about that show is that they give everybody, everybody gets a moment, you know, like the smallest little little one scene appearance gets a moment of uh, uh, gets a joke or a bit or an interaction that's super uncomfortable. And you've got one with George. But what is it like to be a year out of drama school and you're on the show that is already. Like, it's its fourth season. It is a phenomenon. It is appointment television. My buddies and I, people came over to our house to watch it at our off-campus house um, on Thursday nights. It was what you did on a Thursday night was you sat down and watched Seinfeld. Do you, are you weighed down by that pressure?
0: You know what? I had actually, because I'm waiting tips of the time as an actor in L.A. trying to scrape some dough together. I'd never actually seen the show. <gasps> But, Amazing. um, and it was really, it was like, I was, it was part of my career. I was just, I was still, I mean, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have my side card yet. So I get into this room to audition and it's, it's eight, the part is eight words. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on in the scene. And, um, so I go in and I think Larry David's there and Thomas Cisneros, who's directing the episode, I think says to Larry, do you want to explain the scene to him? And Larry goes, no, let's just see what he does. <laughs> so totally just flying by. And I would say, whatever the hell I did. Apparently it was funnier than the redheaded kid who went after me. Okay. So suddenly I find myself on set having never walked on a soundstage before oh over at God. CBS Radford. Yeah. And figure, well, they'll explain it to me now. Little realizing they didn't really have time to um, teach the um, the one-day guest star with the eight words, A, how to act, and B, um, what that was a scene about. So I literally just... Um, um, the guy playing my dad, whose name I just looked at, um, that wonderful Warren, Warren Frost,
1: uh, the amazing
0: actor from Twin Peaks. Um,
1: uh, uh, yeah, uh, Grace Sabrisky's the mom, um, the dad is, I'm going to look this up right now, uh, Henry Ross.
0: No, Henry Ross was the character.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. haha ha, You're right. Ha 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 ha, ha. Amazing. Um, you're Warren. right. Warren Frost. Warren Frost.
0: Holy crap! I actually remember that Warren Frost. Yeah, you're really close. Warren. He Frost. He played a I very apologize. grumpy man, so I just, I just sort of, um, like his character was super grumpy, and my and my lines were kind of grumpy. So I, was, I literally just went, okay, dad's grumpy. Um, Apple didn't fall far from the tree. Nice kind of played. There was a lot of character development with my with my eight lines. That's fantastic, there's, though, because I mean, you can you can
1: take your cues from from anything, but that just makes a lot of logical sense. This guy is my dad. He raised me. I'm supposed to be at college, but I'm conspicuously sitting in the living room. I've probably picked up a lot from this guy. That makes perfect sense.
0: I mean, there's, there's actually an exchange in the lines with um, Jason Alexander. I mean, when he comes in as his future brother in law Yeah, and Susan. My my sister says, "This is my little brother Ricky I'm from college," and he goes, "Oh, hey, great! What what are you studying?" And I think the line was, "Or what's your major?" He goes, and I say, "Say, I think of first is, I don't have one." And the other one was, "I'm not sure," or something. But it, the point is, it was it was one specific thing, and I, I based my roll off of uh, I think it was not sure. So I just think, okay, he's just dumb. Yeah, not that if not that you're dumb if you don't have a major in college, obviously. But but um, if you're
1: not sure what your major is, that doesn't speak well of your intelligence.
0: True. And um, so I was playing that. And then um, they get into the. um, We get into rehearsing it and they tweak the line to um, don't have one. Yeah. So suddenly they think I've based my entire character off of of a he's grumpy and not that smart. It's suddenly out the window. Now, what do I do? But but the great thing is the first day on set. So I walk into the soundstage at CBS Radford, again, having never been on a stage before. And I see a bunch of food. I, I wander over the craft service area. Reach for a pot of coffee and they're out of coffee. So it was an industrial coffee machine, which was exactly like the one I, I was using at China Rockers, where I was working at the time, slinging burgers on Melrose. Okay. So out of muscle memory, I, I dumped the grounds and looked, I started making a pot of coffee. Oh my God. Dumped the grounds, look for the filters in the coffee. Guy washes over and goes, Oh, no, what are you doing? Like, oh, you got a coffee. I was just making another pot. He goes, No, no, that's my job. And I just went, Oh, this is sweet. Like, I'm in a place where people make me coffee. Awesome.
1: That is magnificent. I feel like I tried to help carry something on my very first set, and uh, they're really strict, because you could hurt yourself doing that, so they're really strict about you not doing that. I got barked at for that. You just got a a, a warm chuckle for trying to make a, a coffee for the crew. That is a, a wonderful story. So did you do that? I don't know if you remember this, because it's got it's like three years ago now, but did you do that scene um, on tape night in front of the audience?
0: In front of my eyes, the, uh you know I almost don't remember I'm sure I did it must okay. have been
1: okay that's because that's a you know that's, yeah I don't that's think a... it,
0: only because only because I remember um in between our final our final rehearsal and taping um sitting out going and sitting outside the uh the stage and Jerry's leaning against the wall squatting down leaning against the wall of the stage eating an apple and I made some comment of it being uh my first job and I'm going Oh, it's your first job. You're, you're great. Congratulations. It was very sweet. That's why there that wasn't a great time, though. But I remember him being very nice. And years later I was in the the Candace parking lot, Canis on Fairfax, with my dad. I run into Jason Alexander. Introduced Jason, my dad, and Jason, who will forever be the mentionable mentions to me, says to my dad, my dad, Oh, congratulations, you get a very talented son here. That's which amazing. I makes makes my heart again grow four sizes even bigger. Just Reliving that moment. So to have a guy like Jason Alexander tell your dad, who's worthy of your kid, his kids in L.A. trying to be an actor, to have a comedy TV star tell your dad that your son is talented was um, a pretty special moment.
1: That is lovely. You,
0: you, you get... So I got my SAT card, yeah. went back the next day to serve in burgers at Johnny Rock. It's not understanding why no one understood that I'm now a TV star. <laughs>
1: This is which Johnny Rockets? The one fired. on Melrose? This is the one on Melrose?
0: Oh, this is the original one on Melrose, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not there anymore. But yeah, okay. That's glorious. Um yeah, so what is that like? Because I, I had to go back after a couple of uh uh after a couple of uh TV gigs to, to some day job stuff. Is it um was it just sort of par for the course? Did you in fact have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder? It's fine if you did.
0: Um I probably, I'm sure I did, but then I realized I wasn't going to get me any jobs really quickly. So I, um, eventually, just realized apart par the course, and was like, I better really do well at my auditions now. Nice. The re- the real uh, kick in the cojones was um, I got dropped on my agency at the time.
1: Uh, after or before you booked the Seinfeld gig?
0: After the Seinfeld gig. Oh, for fuck's sake! I had um, after my college showcase. I was one of the, the lucky guys who who I, I got the manager. I got a card from my manager from a man who became my manager. We eventually, somehow, I, I um, stumbled my way into William Morris. Wow! My first station There was this amazing catcher named Laura Kennedy, who's a very sweet woman, who was friends with my manager. He called Laura and said, um "I got a kid. You're going to love him." So I go and I have this meeting with Laura and the whole the whole gang, and and this is for this sort of nice chemistry chemistry meeting. And I call her afterward, and she's talking. She's like, "You know what? They're not going to let me do it." It's like you're great. I can get you a job, but they're not going to let me do it. So she. But sure enough, so she, she got me an audition for um. Nine o two for a, a guest star. It was okay. actually a recurring character, that I got a callback on. Okay. So because I got a callback on this nine o two audition, the agency said, "Okay, I'll take him on. Maybe he'll work." Wow. So I get, and eventually I get, I get the Seinfeld job, get my card, thinking, "Oh, okay, here we are." And um. Or get, I didn't actually get the card. I got tapped heartly. But um, then Laura left the agency, and I was then left with a, a guy who didn't know me and, or know what to do with me. And again, like I'm, you know, a twenty-one-year-old, floppy haired skinny kid with uh, no credits. Mm. But uh, but a very theatrical actor, like John O'Stess, to be a, a, a classical theater actor. I mean, I was pretty sure that's what it's all going to be because because there was also some some um, Chekhov in there. Right, and uh, my first my prof- my first professional LA gig theater gig was um, an Ibsen play down at L.A.T.C. So I would actually made money as an actor doing theater, and um, thought, well, this is just, this can be it. And I, I'd, I'd always thought, should I go to New York or should I stay in LA? Hmm. But be- before I went to SC, I took a summer program at the American Academy in New York, and uh, just to test those waters. And I thought, so getting out of high school, I thought, um, should I go to New York? Or go to LA, but I always sort of figured I'd want to be in LA eventually, because I knew that there wasn't any money in theater, and eventually I wanted to try and be in TV and. Make that Hollywood money,
1: yo. Sure, sure. Um, sure. You uh, uh, at one point, speaking of of LA theater, you end up doing. I got a text from you yesterday that said I am supposed to ask you about doing Jacobian Tragedy in West Hollywood. Here I go. Timothy, yeah. when did you do a Jacobian Tragedy in West Hollywood?
0: So just about 1990, just prior to uh, graduation, I got hooked with a theater company. We bought a bunch of SC grads doing um, Revenge's Tragedy. Yeah. That old, that old classic.
1: Puts butts in seats, Jacobian. that one.
0: Yeah, which... Um, Spoiler alert, there's a lot of this stage is littered with dead people at the end.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But um Tate Donovan was a grad of SC and um he was in a theater company, he was supposed to play the role and had to leave for Europe to go shoot Memphis Bell. Oh wow. He will put in this part and um at this little theater on Moros Place on La Cienega, which at the time it was this beautiful space, which I think was a um one of the early evangelical churches of the time in LA. Okay. And now it's a, like a rug store that sells, you know, twenty thousand dollar Persian rug.
1: You're not doing Shakespeare here. You're doing a deep cut, deep cut, uh, almost medieval tragedy. Because I think that's pre Renaissance, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, 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 do you get butts
0: and seats for something like that? Yeah, there were there were butts and seats. There were a few matinees that had um, less people than actors.
1: Okay, sure, sure.
0: <laughs> because, like I said, it's it's revengeous tragedy. Mm-hmm. Every, the stage is littered with dead people at the end. I'm one of them. Sure. And I hear, I wanted, the, I wanted the blue hair matinees. I hear, they're all dead. But that one's still breathing.
1: Amazing. Was that you? Were you the one who was breathing?
0: I'm sure I was. <laughs> we, we had a, um, I can't remember the name of our director at the time. But he, was, he was an Englishman who um, would occasionally take to um, drinking a six-pack of Guinness in rehearsals and then screaming... Screaming be the actress being like, oh, you fucking Americans. <laughs> so it was very exciting. Um, and a great um, introduction to that world. Going, okay, yeah, I'm not I'm not amongst, I'm out of, I'm not in Kansas. Yeah. But one of the best things to come out of that show was at the corner of, of Melrose Place and Las Scenica was a restaurant called, get this, Merrows Place. Mm-hmm. And um, an older actor one day gave me probably the best piece of advice I'd ever gotten as a young actor struggling in L.A. He said, figure out where who's got the good happy hours. Oh. So, and it just happened this bar on the corner had a great happy hour. So I could go in, drink a beer for an hour, nurse a beer for an hour, and have seven plates of um, potstickers and Chinese chicken salad.
1: And that's dinner.
0: Where I met my buddy Charlie, who eventually became on to be a very good friend of government and in my next theater company. And this company, we eventually would just sort of grill a theater around town. And we started doing... a. One of the guys, Michael, opened a um, sort of an actors' gym on the Gardner stages. So we'd just be a bunch of actors doing monologues, for each, sort of down. It's Gardner just above Hollywood Boulevard, I think. Oh yeah, I know that space. Just bo- above between between Sunset and Hollywood. A bunch of actors doing monologues for each other, and some people work working, others trying to figure out how the they'll do this. And so we started doing these monologues. We do sort of nights at like Highland Grounds on Highland. Like suddenly you're doing monologues in coffee houses.
1: You're right, right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I I know Highland Grounds too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that is also right above Melrose Avenue. Um, yeah, yeah that's. Neat. I mean, that's a fun. Uh, the '90s in L.A. I didn't get here till 02, but the '90s in L.A. always sound a little kind of dreamy and halcyon to me. Um, it just, and maybe it's just the lack of social media uh, cut down on the douchebaggery a little bit. But uh, it just seems like a, a really, a really uh, fun time. I want to flash forward real quick to where I fell in love with you. Um, I speak, of course, of a show that comes up a great deal on this podcast, David Milch's Deadwood. Um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: when you, at what point, when, when you auditioned for that, for one thing, when you auditioned for that, did you get the whole pilot script or did you just get your sides?
0: I think I just got my sides, sides of the breakdown.
1: So that is a very stylized kind of writing. Everybody compares it to Shakespeare. Uh, How do you go into something like that? How much, uh, how much description is in the stage directions for you to come out with this this uh this tenderfoot as they call him frequently.
0: Uh the dude was um as they also call him was the breakdown was really specific of him being basically a rich dilettante. Okay. Completely out of, So I had enough of it. And I could tell by the from just the words who who the guy was and having just come out of theater school and again Thinking I was going to be a classical stage actor, I go to Paramount and I'm excited as hell just to be on the Paramount lot because Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies of the time.
1: Yeah, and that's all—that's all shot just right there, or right out in the open on the so, Paramount lot. Yeah.
0: The audition was in the old writer's building.
2: Oh, nice. And I walk in
0: and I'm like, I'm in this, I'm in this beautiful suit and this um really great tie, and you know you do the thing where I'm sure all actors do this—you immediately go to the signage sheet and you you take the glance and you see what agencies the other actors are with. You go, oh crap, that guy's at a bunch of better agency. Shit, he's gonna Which I <laughs> as I got older, I stopped doing I stuff that self salvatized. Oh, don't do that. Don't
1: don't scan the sign in sheet. That's that's absolute murder. Don't do that at all. Yeah.
0: Because I had since after William Morris and I parted ways, I went from the biggest agency to a very small agency at the time. Okay. And um so yeah, seeing that those UTAs and William Morris's and the Gersh's on the on the menu was um intimidating to me. Mm-hmm. So I, see, so I see this – so again, I'm in this beautiful suit with a great tie, and he's like – what? It's like 19th century um, New York guy, right? So um, – and I look around the room, and I see this guy in kind of Levi's and suede cowboy boots, and like – I called him like the great Hollywood unwashed at the time. Like four days' growth of beard, and I'm like, did you not read the fucking script? What is wrong with you? <laughs> like sort of this, this guy who's like way too cool for school in a T-shirt and jeans and boots. Of course. So he goes in audition. The walls are so thin in these old buildings. Mm-hmm. I hear every word that's going on.
1: Oh, the worst, the worst.
0: No, but in this case, okay. it was great because I then hear David Milch talking to uh, Walter Hill about this guy and like give me notes on this guy's audition.
1: Walter Hill, who directed the the pilot of David, directed the
0: pilot. Yeah. So David going, no, it's going to be this. It's going to be this. So I'm getting the laundry list of what of what David. <laughs> I know you're looking at your face right now. That's amazing. <laughs> so. But I do have to say, feather my own cap. All the notes were what I was going to do anyway. Ah, good. So I go in, and i have already got a little win in myself because I'm I'm pretty confident my choices are, are going to be the right ones. And again, because I I knew I knew how to use heightened language, and basically always stood in first position. I oh wow!
1: First position. Did you did you take ballet in in drama school?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, then I couldn't stop standing up in first position for years because I was always on stage, or so I thought. Okay. Until I finally, I had directors on stage going, "Stop standing like that!
2: <laughs>
0: Stand normal." So I, um, I do the piece, and uh, Walter Hill goes, and "Milch is um, Mr. Milch is um kind," and Walter says to David, or he says to me, "This yeah, man, that's a very fine piece of acting." Oh. So I'm feeling pretty good. And walk, I, I think I walked out and called. I, must, I don't know if I had a cell phone at the time, but um, either went to a pay phone or called my wife Allison and said, I think this one's mine. Nice. Like, it was one of those where most of the time I never thought. You know, very rarely have I walked out of auditions going, yeah, this one's mine. But that's when I was like, this this one's mine.
1: You know, you so know this, for just, certain when you've blown it. You know absolutely for yeah. dead certain when you've blown it. But... Knowing that you've got it, that can be a little uh, that can be a little fear
0: Cut to hearing they do want me for the role, and again, it's it's a guest star on the pilot, right? And um, I was doing judging Amy at the time, okay. So, and I think I was already committed to an episode, so um, the schedule didn't work out, so I didn't get the part in Deadwood. Because HBO went, what do you mean? There's a conflict with this actor. Go to the, there's no conflict. Go to the next guy. Wow. So the next guy got it. I'm looking at my wounds. One day I get I get a phone call from my manager saying, "Hey, uh, like, David Milch and Walter would like to know if you want to, if you can drive out to Santa Clarita tomorrow and meet them." Wow. So I said yes. Yeah. So I drove you know the several hours north. Yeah. Go on set and um, I see Walter and David. And David goes, "Hey, you want to work tomorrow?" oh my god like uh yes sir so i guess what had happened is the actor who got the job he um rehearsed one scene something didn't go well david went off I'd heard, and i i don't know if this is true but i'd heard walter now i'm going to go to cup coffee and say give me the other guy so wow. that apparently is how i got and by then um my commitments on judging me were done oh my god <clears throat> so i show up to set walk into the scene it's already lit and blocked my head is spinning that I'm getting, that I'm A, getting to, to play this role. And I meet, um. gosh, I'm blanking on the, Molly Parker, who the amazing Molly Parker plays my, my wife on the show. And you seemed like there's kind of intricate blocking. I walk in, it's a head full of steam of, it's the um, darling we bought a gold mine. And we sort of had the spinning and kiss. And um, and I have this kind of rather big monologue about how great we're going to be. Mm-hmm. And literally just trying to, like, just the fear of trying to figure out how the hell I make this other guy's blocking work for me. But we shot the scene I didn't get fired. (laughs) And again, I was still pretty, I was still pretty new to acting at the time. In a lot of ways.
1: New to acting on on camera, anyway. On camera. Yeah. But what's interesting about Deadwood, and everyone mentions this, is it's that combination of close frame heightened language that is a little unusual. Usually if your language is that heightened, you're in a theater. There's, you know, the nearest person is 20 feet away from you in the front row here. You're framed like chest up, but you're still doing this very grandiose verbiage that almost has a meter to it. And everyone now, so, go ahead.
0: No, I was in, in that case, I was really lucky that I got to work with Molly because she's, she's such a quiet actress. And so still. And so I could really, she just was very open and I could zone into her and, Locking on on her rhythms and take them over. Then the first day, like the, the first big big day. It's not the very first day, but cut to my next episode when they decide to keep this guy around. Mm-hmm. And um, however briefly, doing this, <laughs> however briefly, poor Debrahm yeah, Spoiler poor, alert. Poor Brom. But I'm doing this scene with um, Ian McShane, mm. who I was a huge fan of. Yeah. So I'm, and I I'm walking down the stairs to this in this saloon and. Ian has this amazing, grandiose introduction of like, Brom Garrett, the Scourge of Deadwood. And I go up and I, and I do a shot of whiskey, whiskey with him and we do the scene. And, I literally, and I'm so excited. I'm, I'm like, I'm almost shaking. And I literally thought to myself, Tim, you're in a pretend bar drinking pretend whiskey with Ian McShane, a guy who you want to be. And your character wants to be swearing engine. So Don't fucking act. Just say the words and be in the moment. Like, you're already, it's already here. The circumstances are already real. Don't act.
1: Oh my God yeah I, I imagine when you're surrounded by people that good, and I've had a couple tastes of this, you just if you're just really listening and reacting honestly, you will you know, aspire to be Ian McShane. you will fall in love with Molly Parker. you will you know, ache for her approval. you will be intimidated by uh, by uh, Timothy Oliphant. you know, you'll have all of those those moments will just kind of be it, it's a it's a feature, not a bug, I should imagine. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and William Sanderson was in the scene as well, who's, <sighs> who was so dynamite. And um, he yeah, was, really, was just, um, just shut up and say the words and be real with these people.
1: I think that's really sound advice in general. Just, you know, make it about the other person, you know. Get out of your head by really, by just looking into the other person's eyes. There's that old James Cagney line about, you know, hit your mark, look the other fellow in the eye and tell the truth. And it sounds like that.
0: Oh, it's Tracy, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Did you get a sense of how kind of historic Deadwood was going to be in the TV landscape?
0: I think I did. Again, I, only did, I think I did three episodes. I guess it was like it was that yeah. thing where I, I'm i dead. They keep me around. They decided to keep writing me in. But uh, I remember going to the read through for the second episode. And, um, also being on set and just watching the actors going by and seeing like actor after after and going, holy shit, they got that guy for this role. This is incredible. Like just seeing this cast and realizing, yeah, this this is a big deal.
1: Well, those first few episodes are bonkers because you've got uh, the great Jim Beaver. Uh, Keith Carradine still on the show. He only lives a couple extra episodes past you. John Hawk's on it. I mean, there's so many good people. Uh, Brad Dorif, who I keep trying to get for this podcast. He is my white whale.
0: <laughs> really? There's uh, no bread a little bit. I'll see if I can help you with that. Oh,
1: uh, grease those wheels and I will be forever in your debt. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's such a. Um, I did a rewatch um, before they they released the film. Um, so you get killed off of this great show super early on. You get thrown off a cliff, and your last words are "mother," which has got to be. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't laugh.
0: <laughs> no, but I um, I remember this. Never in a million years would I do this now, but saying to Mr. Milch really? Mother? That's that's how I'm going out? <laughs> he's like, yeah, because it's, it's fucking perfect for your character. And then, of course, now thinking back, absolutely. But the, the ego in me was like, I don't want to be the guy that says mother. Oh, it's so humiliating.
1: Kill. But it is. He's right. It's perfect for the character. This guy is completely out of his element. He is a tenderfoot in every sense. What is Milch? Like, is he, I mean, he can't be easy to talk to necessarily, not mean necessarily, but I imagine he'd be crazy intimidating.
0: Uh, he was intimidating, but he was, he was always very pleasant to me. Yeah. I mean, he, he does, I mean, he's a, a very charming man. He certainly has, But well, you realize he's a effing genius. He yeah. would come in and, um, it was called, he would milch the scene. Like, I've been doing this for a while. I, I think I'd know how to, i know how to break down a character in a scene. And then he would come in and sort of give his um, Yale professor would take over and he would give a brief like he would give a sort of a lesson on what the scene's really about. Okay. And I would always go, "Oh shit, that's what we're that's what this is about," having no idea that the levels he was going to.
1: There's a gorgeous moment of nonverbal acting in it where you are getting ready to go downstairs, maybe to meet oh, Swearingen.
0: Come on. Um, do you this know the moment I'm talking moment about? She's asleep. I, was, I wanted to tell you the story. I oh, really? This, story. I was, this almost makes me cry. It's, it's one of my favorite moments ever on a set. So I had, um Yeah, so he's getting dressed up to go prospecting, I think. And, That's right. And is, So there's, there's no dialogue in it. And Walter Hill's sitting on an apple box underneath the camera lens. And it was really it was silent movie acting. And David's on set. And he starts directing me. I think I'd... I'd had offered to um the room that so i would love to see to show braun putting on his cowboy hat for the first time
1: wow because yeah. it's this
0: whole it's this thing and um so this seems really it's like it's him in a mirror like looking at himself and while um, almost asleep and david, david so gave directing and like direct me to, like put on the hat and do this and straighten your hat and goes now cough But once my hat's on i'm all dressed and present david goes now cough because I'm trying to, I'm trying to wake her up so she can, so she can witness me in my glory. Amazing. She goes, now I feel like an asshole, <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was, the greatest moment ever. And I, I'm still, I get, I get a little um, goosebumpy thinking about it.
1: Oh, I, I can, I can only
0: imagine. Yeah, I'm just like, no, give me this like silent movie directing, like, cough. Now feel like an asshole. Which the asshole part was really easy for me, being an feeling, (laughs) with that imposter syndrome.
1: And the tragedy is that she is awake. She's hiding the fact that she's awake. That's the really heartbreaking part is that she kind of is awake and she just does not want to engage, but you see her eyes kind of flicker yeah. open slightly. Oh, I love that scene so much. It's, it's funny, for a show that's so famous for its dialogue, uh, the, the one of the moments that really sticks with me is this gorgeous little silent moment. I got to rewatch it now that I know what's going on uh, just off camera. Um, so when you get killed off Deadwood, is there a sense of like, oh shit, what now? I mean, I've just done something really good. Um Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. So okay.
0: I was. So then it's like, and just sort of somewhere holding out hope that they bring Brom back as a ghost. Yeah, or Brom has because, a twin um, brother. <laughs> I think I did pick that at one point. <laughs> like, get get out of here, you're not glad. because I mean, they brought the incredible Garrett Dell Hunt back.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. He did two different was, roles. Yeah, as if
0: he wasn't amazing enough, as Jim McC- I'm trying to remember the character's name. The man who killed Bill Hickok. But um he was so amazing in that role. And um and that eye that he had, his mm-hmm. messed up eye,
2: mm-hmm.
0: was not makeup. That that was just Garrett doing that with his eye on his on his own.
1: Really? That whole that because in the first season he plays the guy who kills Wild Bill uh Cody, and that's his that's his own eye. Just there's no like
0: Yeah, it he, has got has got kind of this hooded eye, but no, that was uh My And God. Garrett was so handsome, they they had to like they took a Shears to his beard one time, just like messed up to Clippers, kind of messed up his beard to make him look all wrangly. Oh, my God. And um, then they brought him back as that incredibly smooth character who who loved Basil Hayden and um, unfortunately killing prostitutes.
1: Uh, Yeah. And then eventually kills himself. Yeah. I could talk Deadwood all day, no. but we're going to move on. So how long between. So between Deadwood and Psych, there's probably some work, but I don't think there's a ton of big work
0: in there, is there? Well there was um there was Sequest. That was between Deadwood and... Oh, hang on. No, 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 I'm wrong. Yeah,
1: uh, no, no, Sequest is nineties. Let's see. So Deadwood probably ends in oh four, oh five, um oh, oh, like oh six, Deadwood ends. No, and... there was
0: that was definitely the downtime.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I see a couple things here. I see, you know, the stuff that we all do—an episode of this, an episode of that. You do a CSI because you're not an LA actor unless you've done a CSI. It's like being in New York and not doing a Law and law Order. Law and Order, right? Yeah. It's it's you know, we we've, I, I I almost had a Miami. I kept coming close to Miami, and I never got one. And oh, I, f-
2: I, get,
0: I, got a, I got a Miami story. Uh,
1: oh, really? Hit it. Would so, you do work with Caruso?
0: I did. So it was the days of. They had just started doing the one day guest star. Okay. So I get this guest star role, and they're like, oh, it's one day. And, and it was the first time I really, and again, I just, I didn't have a lot of, um, went to my sales. And I, my manager decided, like, that was my line in the sand is I'm not doing a one day guest star. Interesting. Like, you want to, you want to, you want to get, you're writing a guest star.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You want to, you want you want a professional actor, then hire, then pay a professional actor rate. Right? right. So we, so we draw our line in the sand. I go to do the scene, and it's, um, this day it was the playoffs were on and David wanted to really get out of get out of finish the day so we could go to a trailer and watch basketball okay so um it was a scene with a lot of people just a hugely number of actors in the scene and they do they go like around the horn and it was, and so finally gets my coverage and it's one of the days like and now it's when I earn my money so I bet I better nail this I better nail this line oh god and I do it. David walks up to me, and goes, "We have a professional," and fist bumps me.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! Which uh, which made
0: me feel very good.
1: Uh, that ter- that I was so scared because he's got a prickly reputation. I do not think I'm speaking yeah. out of turn when I say this. I am usually fairly political on this show. I don't like to gossip, but. Caruso's reputation precedes him um so that could that story could have gone any number of places I was terrified for you for a moment there that was
0: <laughs> you know I was terrified imagine me I, was... I imagine
1: David no, Caruso was wandering over to you he's going he's going to kill me he's going to start crying yeah. I, what's going to happen I what's
0: <laughs> prior to getting psych um or in between the psychs and the door, yeah there were there was the downtime areas where um I think Alice and I were engaged and um I just could not get ahead of I couldn't get like three three episodes of anything in a row.
1: Right. Yep.
0: And um, I think I was work. She got me, helped me get a job working the door at a club, just to make some dough, sweet, get married. Oh, nice. And I went. Um, I think I'd done Sequest at this time already, but um, I it was one of those days where like I humbled myself to the universe, like I will do anything at this point. And um, a buddy of mine had a job, had a a company that moved furniture into uh, for designers. So some rich person would buy a couch and then I was one of the guys who would deliver the couch and take it into this mansion in Beverly Hills. And They'd say, put it there. Like, no, 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 put it over there. And I went, okay. And it was there I was like, he was like, look, I'll give you 60 bucks cash. if you want to come with furniture for a day? And then, so I did that one. Okay, fine. I am, I am back to manual labor having done construction stuff prior to college.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's like, okay, fine. And I really feel like because I went okay, yes, I will move furniture. I will go do manual labor if it keeps food on my table and my fiance happy. And the very next day, I get a job. I get an audition for Xena, which was a massive cold hit. Yeah, and this was right at the time when I was like, if I could just get three jobs in a row, and it was a three-episode arc.
1: But in New Zealand, and so
0: then I'm on a plane. am I'm, I'm on a plane to New Zealand. Wow, working with. People who are still like my lifelong friends.
1: That had to have been such. And, I, and I was, a... so it, was,
0: it was that moment of, yeah, I really think it was. It was that moment of like humbling myself to the inverse, going, okay, this would have having had the conversation every actor has. What can I do for money
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with a theater degree? Yeah, like I have no office <laughs>
0: skills.
1: Right. That's I, I, there's so many stories. I, I, I like to think that I'm sort of above and beyond magical thinking, but there's so many stories of people being like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to grad school and then the job comes through. You know, it, it is it, it happened to me early on in the pandemic. I was I was kind of thinking like I, I might have. I wasn't sad necessarily, but I was like, I I think I'm just kind of, you know, I think I've done my best work. It might be behind me. Eh. And then I got an HBO Max gig that turned into something else. And, you know, it's amazing how um, how uh, (laughs) this is going to sound weird. I can't think a better way to phrase it. The universe listens when you give up.
0: (laughs) No, I'm a full believer in, in manifestation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I really am. No, it it, it proves itself true again and again. Site question Was there a particular movie homage that you loved doing on that show? Because they did so many movie homages, they'd have feature directors come in Um, to do episodes.
0: Yeah, it's got to be the Shining episode. He oh, did. of course. Because James, James Rodriguez, who wrote in, with that episode with Todd, um, is a massive horror fan, mm-hmm. and um, wrote wrote me basically playing the Jack roll as Elastor slowly loses his mind. So great. And I'd said to him, you know, I, at the time, The Shining was the scariest movie in the world to me. Yeah. And I was like, I can't watch it. And he's like, You have to. You're going to miss all the jokes. So the only way I could watch it, I was flying back and forth to LA a lot. So I'm, I'm on a plane, sitting in first class. You in, watch it on that, like on an a, eight
1: inch screen.
0: No, I watched it on my laptop. Yeah, so the eight inch screen <laughs> on a bright, on a very in a, in a plane, in an incredibly bright sunny morning is the only way I can kind of watch it in the shining. You
1: tipped a flight attendant to hold your hand.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or just, just most of my my cries. You colossal wuss. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard. I <laughs> know. Uh, uh, I'm showing it to my daughters thinking, oh, this might be too scary. And they freaking love it.
1: Of course. Of course. It's, it's I not I, scary all of them. We showed it to uh, my kids uh, during the pandemic. And uh, holds up. holds up really nicely. Um so you keep getting these gigs in other countries. You keep getting these amazing gigs in Vancouver in New Zealand, and that eventually takes us to Ireland for Galivant. Um, first off, how right, so, psyched were you to, to book a musical?
0: you know, um, I had when it came to Gallivant, I actually hadn't done a musical since high school. Oh my God. So um, the big it took me five months to get approved for that job, finally.
1: Five months?
0: Took five months of auditioning to get that job because um, the president of the network, who's British, wanted a big, British oh. movie star for them because because Gal- King Richard was such a big role. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah you're the only so,
1: American wow. in an almost exclusively British cast, right?
0: That that is correct. Yes. Yeah. Mallory's Australian. Um, everybody else was was either British or yes. Yeah. So yeah, I was the only, I was the token Yankee. Wow, which was um, super proud that a lot of times the, the crew said they didn't realize I was American. Which so that's a um, good
1: feeling. That's a very good feeling.
0: Because you know, I came up with the accent myself. And...
1: Nice, nice. Um, yeah, your your dialect is really good. Who did you did you have a coach? Did you uh, work on it at home? How'd you how'd you get that? It's a very no, like just, upper just, class uh, what they call received pronunciation dialect over there. That's really. Solid. It was, I
0: just I just him together.
1: Yeah,
0: it was a combination of um, of. Jeremy Irons and um Peter Ustinov as Prince John from the animated um from the animated Robin, Robin Hood. Hood, sure,
1: movie. sure, with the with the pantless fox.
0: Yes, and then um we had an actor on there named Stanley Townsend, who's an amazing British actor, who was working in the national and I would occasionally ask him for um advice on pieces here and there. And
1: right, right. So he would
0: give me, he would give me like just advice on one particular word. Right, And then my friend Tom, who was a very dear, dear friend who lived in the UK, his mother was a very sort of very upper class British woman. So I just kind of based it also on Tom's mom.
1: (laughs) It sounds great. It really, really sounds great. And there's a terrific moment at the end of season one where you're plotting to kill your brother and you get to do... Get to have to do three things at once. You have got to do the accent, you got to play drunk, and you got to lip sync. Um, do you know the moment I'm talking about? You're 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 running through the hallways. You're preparing to kill your brother, but you keep getting you keep stopping for drinks oh, along true. the way.
0: Yeah the um, the episode with Rucker Howard.
1: Yeah, um, exactly. Rucker Howard plays song your brother.
0: Was, uh, the song was Se- "Secret Mission." Was the song?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, it's Alan Menken right wrote the yeah, so, uh, songs for that one, right? So, yes.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, so not only am I having to learn how to sing into a musical, I'm singing Menken songs.
1: What was, I, well, let's back up real quick. What was the last musical you did in high school before Galavant?
0: I have to know. Uh, Guys and Dolls.
1: Wait, who'd you play? I played Sky. Fuck, yes, you did. Oh, my God. Oh my God! We listen. I try to keep this relatively family friendly, but I cannot imagine how late Timothy Amundsen got playing Sky Masterson. Um, I mean, that is just sex on a stick. I can't even. That's wow. Good for you. Um, so you uh, you take a thirty year break from uh, from musical theater, return to it triumphantly with an Alan Menken score in Ireland.
0: Um, it, it, well, we this, had done. Uh, sorry, we had. There was an episode of Psycho as a musical. That's right. That um that Steve Franks wrote, which really rekindled my love for music i was like oh my god i forgot i love singing i love this i love i love musical theater i should do the. i should do more of this
1: yeah yeah it's a um
0: and my new year's resolution that year really was i want to make music a bigger part of my life mm. and then i get this job so um in between um the five months that it took me to get finally cast this job and having to sing for i i actually had to sing for alan at one point
1: Oh my God, What cast. did you? Uh, did they give you songs to sing or did you have to come in with like 16 bars of something?
0: Yeah, I just I came in I did um, Stars from Les Mis. Oh, that's a hard one. Well, that's, a, yeah, I mean, no,
1: that's a hard one. Diverse, that's Javert's that's song that uh, early on in the show that has that weird note at the end. That's hard, yeah.
0: Yes, because that's the role I've always wanted to play on in musical theater. Yeah, of course. So I started. It took so long for me to get the job. I started. I was taking singing lessons. So I worked on that one enough, and would go into the go into the teacher, and they'd all say the same thing of like, oh, "I'd be a lovely instrument. You have no technique whatsoever." No, oh, wow. Cut to me being in Bristol recording in our first recording session, singing King Richard's big song from the pilot. Yeah, yeah. And not being able to hit the top note. Oh fuck. And I'm looking through. I'm looking through the window into. recording studio and seeing all the producers and alan sitting there and they whispering to each other flop sweat begins and i realize holy shit they're gonna realize i'm totally i'm gonna get fired alan manken comes in the studio booth with me and try proceeds to try and teach me how to sing so i can definitely know
1: oh my god
0: so in four minutes he's trying to me singing technique and and i'm convinced i'm gonna get fired sweating profusely and that was between um it's then between seasons one and two is when i really like I was promised that I, would ne- that I would never. I would never go through that again. That's when I really started taking some serious singing lessons.
1: It does feel in season two like you're given a little more to sing. It's almost like, oh, he's been training; he can do his own stunts now.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of was that. They, they were. I think they did sort of recognize that and give me a little more to do, and felt a little more successful. I mean, really, I had, like I was really studying hard and really trying to get my voice into shape. And there was actually there was some talk of trying to get me to New York and fill in for, um, like a stunt cast thing. There was talk about, um, going into to Chicago at one point,
1: uh, as Billy Flynn.
0: Yeah. Which, um, oh, wow. I think Mike Tyson with the time was playing Billy Flynn on one of the versions in, on Broadway. So it's a role that they'll just, they just have people come in and out.
1: Jerry Springer has actually done the role on Broadway of yeah. Billy Flynn. Um, so it is a, uh, how to put this a open-minded casting process over there yeah, regardless. Exactly.
0: But I did, I actually think there were talks with them to do that. So I, I kind of was thinking that which had always sort of, of course, secretly had been my dream is to go and of course tread the boards of the, of the great white way. Of
1: course, of course. Um, I want to talk about uh, the uh, mishap you had in Tampa a few years back. Um, uh,
0: coming up on five years, actually. Is it five years now?
1: Yeah, because it would, it would have been spring 2017, right?
0: Exactly.
1: It was April 29th. April, wow, wow, wow. It's really coming up on five years. Um, uh, happy anniversary?
0: <laughs>
1: um, but No, um, it
0: is because... Uh... I would say it's, it's a survival anniversary. It's the fact that I'm still alive. So it is, it is it is kind of a day to celebrate.
1: It was a massive stroke. It was a fucking massive stroke. And I... We, I you probably don't remember this. We were supposed to have lunch. And you were supposed to be back from Florida. And we, I was like, great, we'll have lunch on this day when you're back from Florida. Text me in the morning. And I didn't hear from you. And I thought like, oh, wow, we're just starting our bromance and this guy's ghosting me. <laughs> and then Sorry, your you uh, a, a friend of your wife's called me and 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 gave me the the update um was there a moment I mean there had to have been I mean you had to have thought for a moment like that's it I'm not gonna act again or was it even or was it a question of like shit am I am I gonna do anything again I mean how how touch and go was it at the beginning there
0: you know when you're in that situation you, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it Like I did not realize how, um, disabled I would be. Okay. And on my left, like my left arm is still totally paralyzed. And my, my voice still isn't where it used to be. And I've got a blind spot on the left side. I mean, acting is entirely different now. Okay. But there was a moment, literally there was a moment in the ICU where I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I beat Hollywood. I became a success. I moved to LA as a kid, became a successful, built a career, became a successful actor. If I can be, if I can beat Hollywood, then I can beat a stroke. Oh, wow. So let's go. And um, and then was blessed to um, have people write for me.
1: So Dan Fogelman created, was one of the creators of Galavant. Uh, and people might not yes. realize because they're such different shows, he's also one of the creators of This Is Us. Um, he is indeed. And those are two fairly distinct visions. But they both have uh, a lot of heart. And they both have... Timothy Amundsen. Now, so he, he, but he incorporated you so organically into it. I mean, you've got Chrissy Metz has to walk a bunch to lose weight, and you were at the time. At, at I remember when you booked that, you were at the like the the peak of your physical therapy work. Like you were really like yeah, just, they just were barely yeah.
0: starting to walk.
1: Yeah, they were really coming at you hard though, and you were you were needed some assistance, and you were working with the cane, and there was a lot of wheelchair stuff, but you. It was this kind of amazing moment of this doesn't feel forced, that you don't feel shoehorned into those episodes. You feel like, oh, it, it makes sense for this show and this character to go on a walk with someone who else also needs to walk desperately for health reasons.
0: And that's, again, the genius of Dan Fogelman and, and the kindness. I was at a um, Karen David, who was my co-star on Galavant, mm-hmm. lives nearby, and I was at dinner at her house where literally they had to, they had to carry my wheelchair over the threshold so I could get into the living room mm. or the dining room that like, goes that messed up, like mm. not walking at all. And, um, Chris Koch, our producing director from Galvan was there who's also a director on and producer on this is us. And we were talking and he said, yeah, you know, maybe we could have you on the show and I literally thought that's never gonna happen. Well, I said, well, maybe I could be a guy in the office in a wheelchair. Ironically I can really, I mean, I'm in a wheelchair, some I use a wheelchair sometimes. But because my left arm was paralyzed, I can't really move around in it that well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So um, I thought I could be a guy in the office. And then Dan starts texting me. As um, Actually, Cat and John who were two other producers from Galvan, They were keeping Dan apprised of my progress as I was recovering. And those guys all came to my— Chris and Cat and John came to my 50th birthday party, which you should have been at.
1: I was there. How dare you? Hey, was it was at the oh, Formosa. Uh, Fuck uh, you. <laughs>
0: I was recovering from a stroke.
1: All right. You know what? You can use that. I'll let you use that card this time, but I was absolutely there. Okay. Um, well, yeah. No, I was sitting at a I, table with you, Joel McHale and Seth Green. How dare you? Um, uh, which right. by the way, you, good luck making an impression when Joel McHale's at your table, but you know, I, I did what I could.
0: <laughs> I was also drinking uh, old fashioneds that night. As you should have. But based on that speech I gave my my speech to Allison, yeah, I think one of them, uh, Kat or John recorded it and sent it to, um, to Dan and said, um and then Chris came up there and it's like, yeah, you're ready to go. Like you're ready to work.
1: That's amazing. It's like a
0: couple of that speech together. Wow. So Dan texts me and it's like, hey, I'm thinking of writing a guy deep in recovery from a stroke. Do you know anyone? Like, yeah, <laughs> <me>. <laughs> <laughs> like where are you gonna get one?
1: <laughs> um uh there's plenty of Hollywood stories that by the way go like that. Um where, go, hey, do you know anyone who's gonna fit this role? Um, the, there's a, a lovely, there's a tender moment in the show. Well, there's a, a tender moment in This Is Us. It's seven seasons of tender moments. There was a particular tender moment in the show. Um, yeah, season four in there where you're taking a break from walking. You're having muscle spasms, which I know is something you occasionally have to deal with in in real life. And Chrissy Metz comes into your house to hang out with you for a little bit and you you start the character very prickly and then they gave you this very nice like thawing over over your episodes where you kind of you genuinely yeah, warm I was up cuz the
0: character was named Gr- Gregory so I was joke he was named who's grumpy gregory cuz he starts out so grumpy
1: yeah um and you and you you know with with perfectly good reason to to be grumpy but there's a, a moment that that struck me um i was watching it this week where you talk to her and and she goes, you don't seem like you're in a good mood. And and you say, well, since the stroke, I've had trouble expressing empathy and gratitude and things like that. Is that a real struggle you've had?
0: That absolutely is. And um, especially with a riper injury, it's a, stru- it's a weird thing. Empathy becomes something that gets difficult to express. Okay. Not necessarily feel, but maybe feel, but also, but mostly to express. And because my face isn't as expressive as it used to be, it's hard to convey that. And I, I wrote I told Dan that and he kindly enough like he wrote he put it in which was a really a sweet gift that he gave me on that one
1: well it's 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 what that show does very well which it doesn't go for like the easy platitude about um uh obesity or adoption or 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 addiction uh, for a network drama I think one of the reasons it's so popular is that it really pauses for a moment and goes no seriously what is this like what what is a stroke like what is you know living with and trying to recover from a a serious obesity issue and it it has this this insight and it's because they listen to the actors clearly
0: yeah and they were open enough to to embrace that and show the warts and all which i was really like if i'm if i'm going to be working which is been sporadic and it's not I can't pretend I didn't have the, I don't have these physical uh, dif- disabilities now. Okay. So that was always my fear of like, I can't pretend my left, my left arm works when it just doesn't. So can we, can we use that and write it in somehow?
2: All right. All right.
1: What, um, how did they. When when you returned for re- remind our audience how how did they accommodate for Lassiter's uh, disability in the psych movies?
0: Uh, last week, last year got sh- get shot in the uh movie. How many times? Left- Pardon me.
1: How many times does he get shot?
0: How many times did he get? Sh- I can't. Uh, we'll say twelve. I don't know. He, he, he just gets sh- <laughs> no. He gets shot once, but he has a stroke on the operating table. So in the in the in those two talk about uh, again love and a, a supporting environment. Those guys, Steve and James, again, wrote, wrote my recovery into the, the story. So Last has a stroke on the operating table. That second movie is based on his recovery. It takes place in a recovery hospital, mm-hmm. which I was in a lot of. Yeah. And then the third movie, again, is him slowly. You see him sort of where, like, both those movies were really where I was in real life at the time. Yeah. And the, uh, I mean, the first movie, I'm just... It's a cameo. I can barely stand and speak. Yeah. We, sh- we shot him in, in my back guest house because I couldn't. I couldn't travel. Oh my God. That's how accommodating they were. Wow. And as my voice has gotten str- stronger over the, um, the years, over these five years now. Yeah. They wrote it in, and then.
1: Um, I, I know that the stroke affected uh, your breathing a little bit. Um, but it's clearly gotten better over the past five years. I mean, the times I've visited you, you, you seem to be, you, your speech gets a little less halting every time I talk to you over the past five years. Oh, that's
0: good here. hear. Yeah, it does. It does feel like my lungs, my lungs have gotten stronger and stronger. And my voice is, is kind of dropped back down into lower register where, similar to where it used to be.
1: Do you think you'll, you'll sing again?
0: Um, funny you should ask that. I, um, We've been watching American Idol. It's one of our favorite um, distracting shows. Yeah. And no show makes me cry like American Idol cry. It makes me cry because yeah. I miss it so much. But um, I literally, I just texted my old my old vocal coach and said, I really want to start doing this again.
1: I am going to cry. So
0: I'm going to, after May, we're going to try and, because um, of the pandemic, she's not, and her studio is right around the corner. So we're trying to, going to try and get back in and see if I can start um, singing. Because there was, one of the things I used to do in in my clinic was with vocal training was um I wanted to be able to sing Happy Birthday to, to Lily because Lily's twentieth birthday was coming up, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to be able to sing Happy Birthday and I, I still couldn't quite I couldn't even muster that up. So, um sorry, John. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm fine, but and I still to this day I can't really um pull it out. I'm just, I'm experimenting with ranges I'm trying if I'm trying. But I do feel like my voice has dropped back into a, a lower range. Of, it's a little bit more of a proper, like my proper, more theater voice. Yeah. Which is such shitty. Like having done all that Shakespeare and having, like, do you know Richard, Richard Spates? Great actor. You should have Richard on. Richard who? Richard I went to theater school. Richard Spade.
1: Oh yeah, sure I know Richard. Yeah.
0: So Richard used to call me "il voce" in, in, in oh, college.
1: Oh wow! Wow, Italian for so the voice. Had that guy
0: who had that voice. Who, yeah. Who? Yeah. Like could hit the back row without any effort and um, be able to handle quick Shakespeare trippingly off the tongue to quote to quote the, the player
1: um, uh,
0: and not feeling much not a lot of times.
1: You introduced me to a British singer songwriter named. Frank Turner both literally and figuratively you 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 told me to check him out I did and now I've seen him a couple times a couple times with you a couple times without you uh and you and I got we'd met on psych but we got to know each other a little bit better doing the thrilling adventure hour which was a very very popular live show and podcast here in Los Angeles and we would cross past there occasionally and on one particular episode you did a Frank Turner song um uh, as a sort of bonus for the audience there. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: It was, it was the holiday fun around, I think. Oh, wow! Cause they want to call it the Christmas show. They call it the holiday, ho- the holiday fun around. So I sang, uh, I did a cover of, of Balthazar and Rosario, which was one of my favorite Frank songs. It's about, it's about a theater owner yeah. and sort of at the age of the, um, hall is dying in the UK. And it's one that always gets me. And so I, um, I have a history of, of trying to do Frank covers and his voice is so much higher than mine. I can, I can never quite do them justice.
1: But you know, I think when you take that version down a register, there's a sadder quality to it. Um, and I love Frank's original, but there's something very special about yours because it is a little bit lower than Frank's that gives it a very literal gravitas. I think is uh, really nice. I am over the moon that you're gonna go back into vocal lessons. And I wish you the best of luck with that.
0: Thank you, my friend. I will let you know, you can come over for coffee and we'll, we'll uh, get a turn. Hey, I'm wearing a Frank T-shirt, Frank I Turner T-shirt. I see, you are
1: wearing me. a Frank Turner T-shirt. Timothy Amundsen, thank you so much for doing this.
0: Jonathan, my dear friend, you really too are a dear friend. You, you were one of the guys I've said to you in the past before. Once I got really sick and could not travel to go meet friends for coffee, you're one of the guys who really showed up in my life.
1: Oh, please. I love coffee. I love you. I love no, coffee. No, it's, it's true, easy. John. Oh, pshaw. Um, we'll do it again. Soon. I love
0: you, John. This, uh, I am. Uh, I'm gonna text you as soon as we're we're done here and see if I can when I can get you on the books.
1: Fantastic.
2: My name is Balthazar uh, Impresario. Find me at the bottom of the page. I have artist's hands, but I'm a working man My craft has been forgotten by the age So tonight will be my last night on this stage This is my family's trade, my father built this place The turning of the 20th century I have been working here for some 50 years. The young these days have Bluetooth TV screens. The old girl is dying on her feet. Once more to the balls, one more.
1: And that is an episode wrap on Timothy Amundsen as we go out to the strains of him singing Balthazar Impresario by Frank Turner. You can find Timothy at Amundsen on both Twitter and Instagram. And he shows up repeatedly on this the final season of this is us forever <laughs>